I don't know. I really think lineage is is kind of key. I mean, it's、mm-hmm. uh, it's key to Buddhism. It's how the Dharma exists, right?、Mm-hmm. The Dharma the Dharma doesn't exist out there in the ether. You know, in, in our world, the Dharma it comes out of people's mouths. It's, it's the people that carry on the teachings of the Buddha. Welcome to the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit beherenownetwork.com/sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm speaking with scholar, researcher, and author. Alexander Gardner, Alex is director and chief editor of the Treasury of Lives, a biographical encyclopedia of Tibet, Inner Asia, and the Himalaya. Alex completed his PhD in Buddhist studies at the University of Michigan in 2007. His research focuses on the collaborative activities of three great 19th-century Tibetan Buddhist masters. In 2019, he released the book, The Life of Jamgon Kongchul the Great, from Shambhala. Alex now lives in the Upper Delaware River Valley of New York State with his husband, two kids, and their sheep and chickens. Welcome to the podcast. It's so wonderful to be speaking with you. Yeah, same here. Thank you so much for inviting me on. This is a real treat. Now I'm curious about your your children and the chi- the chicken and the sheep. <laughs> I you know very famously grew up in New York City, and I thought right, you know, steak was like from the supermarket, and so. <laughs> There's a different sense of interconnection, I imagine. It's so wonderful to live with animals. I mean, every spring, you know, you see all the birds being hatched, and you see,、uh, you know, the birds come back from the south, and then、uh, um, just everything growing, and and the seasons, you know, are so present.、Um, so it's, it's wonderful, and I'm I'm sort of giving my kids the childhood I wished that I had. I grew up、uh-huh. in, in oh, Vermont,、nice. but not on a farm, right? But right. I always I always dreamed of living on a farm, so. So it's great. So they think of the sheep and the chickens not as dinner, I imagine. As no, as yeah, friends. Yeah, in fact, my son. I, I always tried to get my kids to be vegetarian, and they they resisted. But、uh, um, but my son stopped eating chicken the moment、uh, the moment he met our chickens. He just decided <laughs> he couldn't do it anymore. So,、yeah. You know, he, he knows he knows what food is, and so it, it's a conscious choice now when when they do eat meat, they know what they're、uh-huh. eating. So uh-huh. That's important. Oh yeah. So I'm so curious how you grew up in the states. You were born and raised in Vermont. How you became drawn to the historical figures from Eastern philosophy and、right. Buddhist studies. Right. Well, I I,、um, I always think back to my dad. My dad was sort of a seeker.、Um, he was a big fan of Ram Dass. You know, he had Ram、mm-hmm. Dass's books on his shelf、uh, when I was a kid, and he was always looking for the truth. You know, with the capital T. And、um, so when I was seventeen, he took me, and we did a course in transcendental meditation in Burlington.、Mm-hmm, nice. Yeah. And、uh, you know, I mean, I, I I don't do that anymore, but it really gave me a foundation of a daily practice, right? So that、uh, that stuck with me, and、um, you know, I think at seventeen, I'm very impressionable, right? So I learned the value of that young,、uh, so I never had to be convinced of it.、Um, mm-hmm. 
And then when I went to college, I, I, I fell in with this crowd of people who were, were Buddhists and, and had connections with IMS, actually. And, <laughs> um, so, so I learned Buddhist meditation. And uh, um, yeah, and then, uh, and then we did that amazing retreat. Um, yeah. After I graduated college, I was, you know, for two months, we sat in, in, the, in this Zen monastery in the Catskills, right, with the, these two amazing Tibetan teachers. And, and Surya yeah, Dasa. who would have guessed? Yeah, yeah it was right? extraordinary. Yeah. Um, it, it was, I mean, for me, for a young person to, to sit aside, you and, and, uh, and Joseph and, and these other teachers, and Ram Das even came. You yeah, know, I was, yeah, I was yeah. pleased to be able to tell my father that. Um, yeah, yeah. And Surya Das would tell all of these stories, you know, of the great masters who, who transmitted the teachings, and I just, uh, I just, they really resonated with me. Their their lives and their, you know, their activities, and I really felt devotion to them. They they didn't, I don't know. I guess through through those really charming stories, they didn't feel so far away, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to know more. So. It's so great. I mean, it was such a magical time because looking back is like. How did we pull that off? You yeah. know? Like, like, that was unbelievable. You know? like, yeah. On yeah. every level. I mean, Surya, of course, was the connection to Nyosha Ken Rinpoche, who was a great, great, great teacher. Yeah. And really like the teacher of my heart in so many ways. And yeah. um figuring out how to get him for a while. And then Sokin Rinpoche was his first trip to North America. He came from right. Argentina and he's right. he's very fond of telling the story how you know, in Argentina, they met him in the airport with like a band, you know, and like flowers and kissing him. And, you know, and then he got to America and it was like everyone was just sort of grim and you know, yeah. like quiet. And, um, you know, right. and that we had him for two months, you know, it was like. It's amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. I mean, and I, you know, I mean, I was 21 years old. Yeah. I had no yeah. idea that this was, you know, I just thought, okay, this is the way retreats are. These incredible practitioners and teachers right. are all going to be surrounding me and I'm going to be able to, you know, absorb it all. I can, mm-hmm. It really felt like I, I, I connected with the most amazing sangha that, that was possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I really treasure it, you know, because I was also, of course, very young. I was 18 when I started meditating in India. I was uh, 21 when I began teaching. I was 23 when we began oh. IMS and was way too young, really. <laughs> um, but you know, our time is different from that time, and um, that retreat we had was all the more exceptional because we live in a time where, not quite then, it was it was too long ago, but not too soon thereafter, not too you know long thereafter, uh, it was all apps and you know, right, right. In, in the mindfulness industry, and, right, right, and the yeah. question of lineage was was very. I'm not even secondary in people's minds often, you know, it's like unthought of. Right. So I'm curious about how you view the concept of lineage given all your experience and work in this field. Well, I, I, I don't know. I really think lineage is, is kind of key. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. it's key to Buddhism. It's, it's, it's how the Dharma exists right mm-hmm. the dharma the dharma doesn't exist out there in the ether you know mm-hmm. like there's, i mean there's the, you know there's great stories and of the pure lands where the the wind blows and then the the, the leaves rustle and it, it's the sound of the dharma teachings right but uh, mm-hmm. you know in, in our world the dharma it comes out of people's mouths right you, yeah. you, need, you need people and uh, and so you know it's the people that carry on um the teachings of the Buddha. It's the people mm-hmm. who receive it and then they they practice it and they and then they pass it on forward. It's like a it's like a generational thing. Um, mm-hmm. 
and it's it's also a, I mean, in a way, it's a it's a certificate of authenticity, right? I mean, you 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 don't having being in a lineage doesn't make you a great teacher, but it's sort of like a I don't know. You could be a bad teacher, but but it's it's needed, right? Mm-hmm, because without, mm-hmm. without that lineage, there's no connection to the Buddha. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's uh, um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's the sort of the history and the and the sort of the lifeblood, um, mm-hmm. and it's also at the same time it doesn't discount innovation or change. You know, I mean, everything mm-hmm. changes, and uh, but you need the lineage. You need to know your lineage in order to know that your teacher. Um, you know, has that connection, has that authenticity, has that transmission. I've often wondered, you know, because I, I not only started when I was so young, but I started in Bodh Gaya. Wow. Which is, you know, the first place I ever drew a mindful breath, as far as I recollect. And um, Bodh Gaya is the town that is um, grown up around the descendant of the tree. Mm-hmm. They say the, the Buddha was sitting under when he became the Buddha, when he became fully enlightened. And so... It's a very, very holy place. It's a very, um, it's a place that's seen apparently a great deal of growth and change lately. You know, I haven't been there in so many years, but, um, you know, there's a beautiful, beautiful stupa, uh, a temple behind the tree. And uh, Joseph always said, I think quite aptly, he said, it's so beautiful. It's commensurate with what happened there, Hmm. you know, which is saying a lot. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, in my day, you know, when I was young, there were there was one Tibetan temple, there was one Chinese temple, um, there was the Burmese temple, which is where we all stayed down the right. road. There was one Thai temple, and there was a Gandhi ashram, and a couple of tailor shops, a few chai shops. Uh, that was it, you know. That was the, right. that was the town, and then the tree, right? And so, you know, massive numbers of local pilgrims. Um, you know, not international pilgrims at that time, but um, some Westerners. And uh, and I often wondered, you know, like, um, if that influenced me as well, that here I am in the place where the Buddha was when he became enlightened. And this is what he was looking at, you know, yeah. and this was his vista. And this is where he sat and ate some milk rice uh, or cure anyone on their way to an Indian restaurant. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is the last thing he ate before his enlightenment. And, uh, and uh, you know, this is where he sat and ate that. And this is where he got up and did walking meditation after his enlightenment. And this is where he, you know, and it was like, he was like a friend, you know, who's there. He was so palpable yeah. in a way. Yeah. I've often wondered about that too, not to mention, you know, the um, incredible blessing of having really fine teachers. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think there's there's a there's a palpable sense of his presence in Buddha Gaya, and I mm-hmm. I think you know we bring that. I mean, we bring that with our devotion. We bring mm-hmm. that with our faith, and we we say this is where the Buddha, you know, like you were saying, this is where the Buddha sat. This is where the Buddha walked. This is where the Buddha mm-hmm. awoke. Um, and uh, you know, I think we're we're very physical beings, and and we forget how important place is often. Um, mm-hmm. And Buddha Gaya is a really nice reminder of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the way teachers, you know, from all over the world now, you know, go to Buddha Gaya, yeah, yeah. You know, give teachings or just sort of rejuvenate. And uh, um, yeah, it's a magical place. But I, I like you, I haven't been there for probably 20 years. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's going to be a while, I'm sure, yeah. if ever again. You know, right, like. right. You know, one more thing about lineage that I think is is important that, that uh, is that um, 
I think lineage it sort of helps us remember that that our teachers are are are, are one link in a chain, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it sort of like sort of decenters the teacher. I mean, the teacher obviously is is vitally important. Mm-hmm. And we, have, we have to remember that. But then, you know, the teacher is the transmitter of the Dharma. Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. The teacher is not the Buddha. Yeah. Um, the teacher is the Buddha's representative in a way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so we venerate. You know her as as the representative, but but as a human as a human being, right? As a flawed human being, yeah, yeah. it's not perfect, and we can acknowledge that if 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 we remember the lineage, we remember our teacher was a student. Our teacher, you know, had teachers mm-hmm. herself, and our teacher, you know, um, I don't know. It sort of it sort of deflates the sort of excessive um, image of the teacher as 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 everything you know yeah which is vitally important yeah 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 it's hard i mean in in tibetan buddhism especially right you you venerate your teacher as as the buddha that's that's an actual practice that you do very important but you do that when you're in meditation that you know you get off of your cushion and you have to remember your teacher is human yeah be careful yeah, <laughs> be very careful. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and it's that's it's not a new thing. You know, the t- the text says you, you know you, you know they all say you know examine your teacher very well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember that your teacher is human, um, and then do this practice. But you're doing the practice. Your teacher is not doing the practice. You know, yeah. So your well, it's your devotion. Yeah, like when I wrote faith, you know, which was some years ago, um, from the Theravadan point of view, you know, faith as a quality of the mind um, is, is vitally important, but it's, it's got phases and stages and aspects. And the first blossoming of faith for many people is what they call bright faith, which is like falling in love, you know, it's so beautiful. And it's like um, the example that's usually used is like you're in a dark enclosed room, the door shut and then something happens so that the door swings open and, you don't know what's out there, but you know it's so much bigger than what's in there. You know, like the room is not the world, and and there's a world out there, and so much could happen, and so much possibility, and so much it could look so different than it looks in that sort of dim little corridor, and um, and it's this amazing moment, and often essential, you know, and so beautiful, but so intoxicating at yeah. the same time, and also so, leaves you so. Vulnerable. First of all, you can be very fickle. It's like you can meet one. Say it comes from meeting a teacher. It doesn't have to come from meeting a teacher, but let's say it does. You know, um, you meet one teacher one day, and you think that's it. I'm going to just follow that person. And you meet another teacher another day, and you think, forget about that other one. You know, like I'm following this one, and we get confused by charisma. We get confused by lots of other things, and then. The the biggest vulnerability is really that we become sometimes afraid to question and afraid right. to, you know, doubt, even though it's so vital to right. everything the Buddha himself talked about, you know, right. find out for yourself, put it into practice, right. check exactly. it out. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you get afraid of making waves and you don't want to bring up the things that are making you uneasy and and you're afraid. You're afraid that your uh, your faith is weak, or your, yeah. your your devotion is flawed, right? You know, and so kind of winding your way through all that, and remembering that it's good to question. It's important to question, and that your faith will only be strengthened by doubt. It won't be weakened by doubt. Right. right. Um, it it seems really uh, it's a tricky path, but it, it's really important that we do that. Otherwise, we're not 
we're staying stuck, you know, in some way. Right. I think it's also important to remember, I can't imagine there's a bodhisattva out there who would be offended by being questioned, you know, right. Right. <laughs> like, let's remember who we're talking about. These are, these are the representatives of the Buddha. They're not going to, they're not yeah. going to be angry if we, if we question them. Yeah. That's their job is to, to get us to think critically. Yeah, no, that's true. It's true. I've often been in some situation where um, I've been in lots of different <laughs> situations, but you know, either a situation where um, people seem to be saying that they're claiming the Dharma as their own. It's like they, almost they alone know what's true. Right. At one sort of bad moment, I said to somebody, um, if you've been teaching, and this was a you know the Western, and like if you've been teaching all these years, and and you only are you the only one who knows what's true, like what's happened to your students? You know, right. like it's right. not very impressive. You know, like, really. Right. Yeah. Again, that's why lineage is important, right? I mean, if any one teacher thinks that he or she is is everything, then yeah. you know, they obviously don't know their place in the lineage. They don't have yeah. the humility yeah. of lineage. We did an interesting thing when we began IMS too. I think it was very um, ahead of its time. It's not exactly the way it's run right now, but uh, we decided on a separation of church and state mm. so that the teachers would be really almost like a program committee of a board, you know, deciding who teaches here and what gets taught and things that they have spent years and years and years devoting themselves to trying to understand. And, um, but like all financial decisions and sort of, you'd say the real power, mm -hmm. certainly the legal power of the organization is with the board of directors and, and they were different. And, uh, we used to call it separation of church and state, which I like quite a lot. Mm -hmm. That's smart. Um, and it became more unified body. Now it's shifting again because it's a lot of work being on a board of directors, you know, and, but I, I heard, especially, you know, in the course kind of course cultural world in which you and I have tend to tended to grow up in, you know, um, in terms of Dharma, uh, the, um, you know, the great veneration one might hold one Zen teacher, for example, when it has to do with um, working with a koan or working with your mind or working with your fear, would often translate into what kind of truck should we buy, Roshi? You know? <laughs> and the man knew nothing about trucks, but he'd seen a picture in a magazine or something like that. Right. So he'd say, oh, that one. You know? right. and like, so the whole organization was dependent on a field not really well studied. You know? right. right. It's very funny. So I'm really curious about life of Jam Gong Kong truly great. Uh, which tells the story of an influential Tibetan teacher from the 19th century. Um, what number control was that? And which would have been the one that I met in uh, oh, you would have met as a child? Yeah, the third. You would have met the third. Okay. He was the one that passed away in the car crash right? yeah, when, yeah, when yeah. we were at yeah, that. Yeah. 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 yeah, so this was the first control who really um, – he was he was said to be a reincarnation of somebody, but it was really he was a sort of a self made individual mm -hmm. in, in that sense. Um, um, yeah, so I I remember hearing stories again. You know, Surya Das told us stories uh, um, at the retreat, and then and then I traveled in in Asia after I after that retreat and I finished college. I, I traveled a lot in in Asia. 
And then I, I, when I got to grad school, I, I did language study in, in, um, in Sichuan province in China, where, where Dege and a lot of, of calm is nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and you can't go like, you can't go 10 miles in that region without coming across the impact of, of control and his two colleagues, uh, Jamian Kinse Wangpo and Chu mm-hmm. Yilingpa. I mean, they mm-hmm. just went everywhere. They, they sanctified the, the whole landscape with, uh, you know, caves and monasteries and stupas and, and mountains. And they mm-hmm. just they connected everything with Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. It was, uh, just really astonishing amount of work and so you know me who grew up in vermont i loved the forest and i loved the, the hills and i uh, and i loved the, the the landscape and calm is so beautiful and i thought if these people were out there you know and they these people really cared about these mountains and they they knew these mountains you know they taught they told their stories and and i just really that really resonated with me so and then control i mean it's just the, the more I studied and the more I, I practiced, uh, the more I realized that, uh, you know, almost any, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, almost any nyingma or, or, or kagyu or even so much sakya sort of teachings flowed through kongkrul. He, you know, he was just instrumental in, in, in gathering up all available teachings, sort of organizing them and then transmitting them. And he, he you know, he did the one vital thing that he did was he published he, mm-hmm. he gathered all these revelations that had been you know floating around in tibet all these incredibly beautiful um teachings that just existed you know in one manuscript and, and he he published he, he made these huge collections of teachings mm-hmm. so that we have them and that was you know very you know it's vital thing he did um and then again, you know, I mean, I could talk about Kongtrul all day, but another thing that mm-hmm. that I love, Kongtrul, he's he's sort of the paragon of of, of, of Tibetan ecumenicalism, right? He's mm-hmm. the, he just loved everything. He had this insatiable curiosity for the teaching, this great love and appreciation for all the different teachings that that Tibet had had created by that point. And so he just went around and he gathered them, he, he received them, and he practiced them. Um, and he did it in this really beautiful way, where he he sort of he he respected the integrity of each teaching. Right? He didn't he didn't sort of like take the stuff that he liked and merge it all together and make a new thing. He mm-hmm. didn't. He was very very careful um, about keeping each teaching intact. Um, so he would come up with these these massive compendiums of teachings, and they mm-hmm. would all. Right sections. This is the Nyingma section. This is the the Northern Treasure section of the Nyingma. You know, everything was in its place, and uh, and so someone could go to it and 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 practice that. You know, because each teaching was a whole unto itself, right? Um, There's a complete path, and so he wanted to make sure that those paths stayed distinct, um, and he loved them all equally. Um, mm-hmm. And the, I think that's just a very beautiful way of. Mm-hmm seeing the world right i mean we're so parochial these days we're so wrapped up in in what we have you know control it's not that he didn't have his own tradition i mean he had his own monasteries he had his own institution he had his own practices but he didn't he he didn't say those were better mm-hmm. he said, this is what i do i mean this is where mm-hmm. i'm standing you know and i'm going to stand here and i'm going to look out at the world and, and appreciate it um, and you stand where you're going to stand, you know, and appreciate it. And, and we're going to get along because we're both doing something that's, that's worthwhile. We can learn from each other and we mm-hmm. can you know, share ideas. And, and that's just, you know, what a model of, uh, for the world. 
He would have been a young teenager too, maybe like twelve when I met him or something. Oh, he's a teenager. Yeah. You know, yeah, it was a long time ago, and um, he was impressive even then. You know, of in, in the midst of outstanding other young teachers. You know, right? Yeah, I never met him. I wish I had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was very beautiful. Um, yeah. Is there a rebirth? Is there a fourth? Is yeah. There a- yeah, he's yeah. He must be in his twenties or thirties. I haven't met him though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the Tibetans are very good at finding the reincarnations of their teachers. <laughs> they are. They're very good at that. It doesn't always work, but it uh, <laughs> definitely produced some remarkable teachers. Yeah. Is there anything you found out in your research about Jamgon Kongtro Rinpoche that surprised you? That was well. Uh... You know, I mean, there's definitely like his remake, you know, his non-sectarianism mm-hmm. is definitely well known and people, people talk about it a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's great. But I think the more I sort of learned about him and, and, and sort of got into his head, so to speak, to, to the degree that, you know, someone like me could mm-hmm. ever do that. Um, he's really, it was, it was more than that. It was, uh, I don't know, I, I, in a way, I sort of, I think of his non-sectarianism as, as, as a form of pure vision. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it wasn't just that, you know, the Kagyu and the Nyingma are okay, but it's, it's really almost breaking down the us and them and the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the duality of all things. Mm-hmm. And, and that sort of, that unity of two truths. I mean, Kongtrul, there he was in the world, very much involved in institution building and yet mm-hmm. reaching everything with this pure vision in which this is all made up. This is all impermanent. This is mm-hmm. all, you know, a construct of our mind and of our activity. And really, mm-hmm. it's all empty and and so you know i think ultimately what his remake what his non-sectarianism means is really it's just that it's it's a it's non-duality it's it's a mm-hmm. it's an awareness and a and a of emptiness and a and an, an engagement with the world with the view of emptiness and i think you know, I really came, I started thinking of control. In a way, I, I kind of started the book as a response to a lot of depictions of him as this sort of like, I don't know, kind of like airy fairy floating on cloud, you know, perfect from birth, uh, you know, great, you know, celestial being. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, the way that, you know, the great masters tend to get depicted sometimes, you know, it's just like aloof. And uh, um, and I thought, no, control was really it, here he was he was on the ground he was walking you know mm-hmm. he, was, he was getting his hands dirty you know and i think that's what's most exciting about him is he was there in the world getting his hands dirty with with this with this attitude of of, of non-duality this the uh, mm-hmm. you know so in a way like i started i wanted to write this biography of him you know control the person but by the end of the book i really said this is a buddha my goodness yeah. <laughs> which is great i mean a buddha is a person and and that's i think we have to remember that yeah like i was on a panel with jamgang kong chobuche once which is these things are so mortifying to remember you know like why did they put me on a panel with but um uh it was god it was a sick there was an early early psychotherapy and buddhism conference and um i was on this panel with him and jack engler who's a friend who's a clinical psychologist and um, and something came up in the course of the panel with one of the questions where I just said, you know, like, um, you have to understand the context in which 
at least some of the people on this panel are holding, you know, this teaching. I said, they have lost everything mm. material. Their families, in some cases, have been killed. You know, their um, stature, the, their sense of security is gone. You know, like, uh, and I, I, there's one story, I don't know if you remember that Nersha Khan told in that, in that month that he was with us, um, where he talked about, uh, at some point, he too was not, born of great lineage and, you know, uh, had a very humble background. His father was a bandit, you know, uh, which you tell these story, tell us these stories about. And, um, whatever renown he, he attained was because of his scholarship and his dedication, to his own being, you know? And so then he was kind of, um, uh, the toast of the town for whatever little remote town in Tibet somewhere. And, uh, and then the invasion, the Chinese invasion came and he had to leave. And and so, you know, the the last iteration of his life in, in Tibet was sitting on high thrones and right. being venerated and being respected. And then he said, and then I ended up a beggar on the streets of Calcutta. Right. right. And, you know, so my heart was like broken and I was full of sorrow and I was all upset. And then he said, I was very happy. <laughs> I thought, what? You know, like, what? That didn't compute. <laughs> And you know, he he said, "Go out, I beg for enough uh, pennies to get some chai and whatever." I had enough, you know. Like, um, yeah, he wandered all over India. Yeah, wandered all over India. Yeah, yeah. with and the then, Yeah, and people didn't realize. I think it took time for for even the Tibetans to to realize that. Oh my goodness, this is a yeah. this is a great yeah. practitioner and yeah. a very yeah. skilled teacher. You know, so they're sitting on this panel with Jumgun coming to some hotel ballroom, you know. And, Everyone is talking about the fine point, points of this and that, but you realize there is a context also to the historical reality of um, preservation and what that means and what it means when everything is in danger and right. texts are destroyed and teachers are imprisoned. And um, I don't know, it, just, it came bursting out of me, <laughs> you know, in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And if, if the first control hadn't, you know, published these books, hadn't yeah. gathered these teachings, they would they would certainly have been lost yeah. a hundred years later. Yeah. And it's so much harder to start all over again, you know, you think, well. Yeah. <laughs> and that brings us to Treasury of Lives. Yeah. <laughs> How did that happen? How did that come about? So I so I finished grad school in Michigan and I got um I went to work for Gene Smith, who started the, the Tibetan mm -hmm. Buddhist Resource Center, now the, the Buddhist Digital Resource Center. Um, and he, he was being sponsored by the Rubin family in New York. Uh, mm -hmm. And so from, from working for Gene, I, I went to work for Don and Shelley, so who, who you know, and mm -hmm. uh, started the, the amazing Rubin Museum of Art in New York. And, you know, they had this amazing collection of Himalayan art, um, and all, all these portraits of lamas. Um, and he would, Don would always ask visiting monks, um, you know, who is that guy? Who is, who is this picture? And, you know, they wouldn't always know. And he, he just became convinced that the world needed a website that explained all of these things. Mm -hmm. so, good. Um, so he got Matthew Ricard and Vivian Kurds and, uh, and Mok Mokotov to start sort of a, they did a prototype of sort of like a what's what and who's who of Tibetan Buddhism. So, so they completed that, and then I came on to, to, to take it over, and, and I decided that we would just sort of pare it down just to biographies. Um, 
So, um, so that's uh, you know when we called it the treasure of lives because we you know that's it sounds Tibetan and it also you know it's all about the lives that these people lived and uh, um, you know and I had, I've was fortunate you know again to work with Gene on starting it and Jeff Watt who runs the <laughs> the, the Himalayan art resources and, and all the great folks at the Rubin Museum so um, so yeah it's been I think we've I think we're like seventeen years old old well, at this point. yeah for a while and uh and the tech you know i mean like i'm a total technophobe so (laughs) i'm running a a, an online you know encyclopedia (laughs) no i'm very very lucky i have to say to my colleague at at the treasury katie tsuji is uh she's very very adept at at tech and and is also a mongolian scholar so she uh, she adds that dimension um yeah, we've had a great team. That's great. Because, it, you know, you just get the sense there's so much, there's so much um, knowledge. And uh, it, it is a body of knowledge. And, and you know, on any album, even if it's something you're not personally going to undertake or you feel um, is best tucked away somewhere, you know, right. uh, is it's not something you want destroyed. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I've, I love the stories of people, you know, I mean, from my very young age, I've always been fascinated by, by biographies, you know, it's like, and, and in Buddhism and traditionally biographies are very, very important because they're the, they're sort of the, they're, they're both the map and the inspiration, right? I mean, these are the mm-hmm. people who did it, right? These are the, these are the lives of the, this is how they did it. They went from, you know, from nothing or, you know, they went from a normal person mm-hmm. like you and me, you know, always starts like you and me. And then they, 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 they listen to the teachings and they practice the teachings and they, they master the teachings. And, and that's, you know, it's, it's always, and you can too, you know, this is, this is something that everybody can do. This is a mm-hmm. teaching that's available. You know? And I think that's, that's very inspiring. So. So was that like a leap into technology or it was just, you had to do it? I just had to do it. I mean, I just, but we were lucky. I mean, Don was very, was very generous that we, we were able to hire people to mm-hmm. do it. Um, you know, and, and I think like I've had offers to like publishers would like to like to come out with uh, um, you know, printed versions of the treasury, you know, and, and that's mm-hmm. a nice idea, but I think, you lose so much, right? I mean, one of the great things about the internet is is the connectivity, right? The the mm-hmm. links. So, you know, we can show how in any biography how this person studied with all of these different people, and then you can click through to their biography. And you mm-hmm. can you can show how these how place was so important, how this monastery or that cave was so important. You can click through to that place and get a description, and then and then find out who else studied there or practiced there. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you really sort of, you can go back and forth and, and just go onwards and, and see all of these, these connections. I think it's, you know, that, that's the, the glory of the internet. So. That's very interesting. Cause I wonder if, um, the sense of agency, like you get to choose what you're going to click through to mm. makes some difference because I'm more recently in a very amused way, you know, it was, confronting um, guiding meditations on 
some electronic means, like an app, you know, or a website or something like that. And, uh, not thinking to explicitly explain that when I become silent, I'm giving meditation instruction and I'm meditating myself. And then when I become silent, I'm meditating myself. And that's the clear for you to keep going, you know, <laughs> rather than like people started telling me, like, you don't understand. Like people start writing in saying my app is broken. It was just silence. <laughs> and then they beam me in. This is pre COVID. They, they beam me into some business conference somewhere. I forget why I was even there, but uh, there was some reason I was there. And I said, yes. And, and I saw people were writing in the chat. The live stream is broken. She's just, wow. silent, you know, wow. said, Oh my God, it's true. You know, like, <laughs> it just never occurred to me to say, this is what science is for. Right. Right. It's yeah. for you to put it into practice. Yeah. Silence on the web means something's broken. Right. Yeah. That's right. It's so funny. So how do you deal with that on an app? I mean, how does, I've never actually used a meditation app. I mean, I, like prompts yes. one thing yeah. and yeah. like you don't want the person talking the whole way through no no what i do is i i try to remember to say it somewhere in the this is a whole big introduction you know sit comfortably you can have your eyes open or closed whatever um i try to say somewhere in there when i become silent that's the signal <laughs> for you right to put into practice what i've just suggested. right, right. you know so that maybe even if they largely forget, they'll kind of remember, oh, you're right, I'm supposed to do something now. Wow. <laughs> yeah, technology is, it's a, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. It's all, it's, it's a, it, there's so much opportunity. And yet, mm -hmm. you know, when it becomes a replacement, you know, the teachings are so valuable when you're, when you're sitting with other people. It's so, it's so key. Yeah. yeah. But COVID has made that so hard, you know, I mean, of course we have to rely on, on technology now. Yeah, I mean, I, I have not, as of yet, in the time we're recording this, you know, uh, really taught in person, you know, so that's interesting. Wow. Um, and related to that, in a way, is another question I wanted to ask you, because I had a book, Real Change, that came out in 2020. It came out in, uh, I think it was September 2020, and it was June. It was supposed to come out in June. Uh, so it was delayed a few months because mm. of the, the pandemic, and uh, which gave me the opportunity, as uh, many people listening to this blog know, it gave me the opportunity to go back to the publisher and ask if I might write a new uh, preface to the book because people, the very few people who were already reading the book were reading it, like to excerpt it and something like that. And this friend said to me, um, I really liked what you're writing, but those examples are driving me crazy. And I keep thinking, that's what made you anxious? Where do you see what's coming? You know, like, and so I went to the publisher quickly and I said, would it be all right with you if I wrote a new intro? Because I, I just feel the need to put some context around what we're going through. And they said yes. And so the, um, the overriding question for me in order to prepare that intro was, what's still true? Mm. Well, your plans are gone. Uh, you know, yeah, I thought it was going to be in New York. It was gone. Um, there were there was so much that was uncertain or unknown or or just falling apart. Yeah, and so that became the most profound element, actually. I think of that exercise is just asking myself, like, what's still true? And that reminds me of the word dharma uh, and its meaning of that which we rely on. Right. 
and that which we can count on. And so um, you, your book was not that long before then, you know, July 2019. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if you went through a process uh, and if you were asking yourself something like, what's still true? <laughs> I, I mean, certainly not f- for the book because the book, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, maybe I could say that. I mean, I think about COVID and I, I think I try to think like, what's, what, what are we better off for? Like, what did we learn? Mm-hmm, yeah. What is, what are we coming out for? Where's the silver lining? And I'm still, mm-hmm. I'm still stuck in, oh my goodness, we're all so, we're all still suffering. Right. And not only that, but things got so bad for so many people that just the amount of suffering in the world yeah. you know, was, wasn't, the existing suffering, the inequalities, the injustices, you know, the racial injustice and the economic inequality. I mean, it just laid bare, but, but even got worse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then I think, well, but we know that now in a way that we didn't before, right? The Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, it just made us confront the, the COVID made us confront the realities of, of, of our healthcare system and of the mm-hmm. inequality. So maybe like, I don't know, like, like, I feel like the world is burning, right? And I, I think of, like, Greta Thunberg, her mm-hmm. amazing statement, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, we need to act like the world is burning because it is. You know, our house is burning because mm-hmm. it is. You know, it, it makes me think of the Buddha's parable in the Lotus Sutra, you know, where he, he tells, he, there, he's a, he tells of a father whose, whose children are inside of a burning house and they won't come out because he just can't get them to believe that the flames are there. They just very mm-hmm of it so he makes up a story of this marvelous chariot that's outside that that will excite them and then get them running outside to see the chariot and there's no chariot he he made Mm -hmm. that up but he got them out of the burning house and i feel like that's where we are we're in this burning Mm -hmm. house need to we need those teachings you know we need those the buddhist teachings to 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 be aware of it to help us know that it's there but not just to know it but be able to to manage that knowledge with compassion, right? And with mindfulness and be able to breathe through it because it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, for me, that's still true. The Buddhist teachings are all the more needed because the, we, the Buddhists taught us how to face suffering, how mm-hmm. to face crisis and how to do it with compassion, you know, for ourselves and for the people who are suffering with us and even for the people who you know we might otherwise you know, hate because of it you know the anger mm-hmm. that swells up in us you know in the face of all these injustices you know so i i would say the dharma is still true for that you know thank goodness mm-hmm. really yeah. and i'm wondering also about these beings that you've studied you know if there's something that you would draw from that body of knowledge that expertise is Dharma in general, or did somebody have some? Like I, I often talk about, you know, when I talk about my own teachers, like some of my teachers were very kind of witty, you know, and, and they could say things in one sentence that would just like change your whole perspective. Right. And another teacher, like this woman Deepamma, who's actually the person who told me to teach. I don't know if I can remember a single thing she ever said to me. <laughs> Honestly, you know, it, it was all her being. Oh. Right. And how tremendously loving she was. I mean, I do remember some things like, you should teach. <laughs> that was important, <laughs> you know, but, uh, or you, you you can do anything you want to do. It's your thinking. You can't do it. It's going to stop you. That was helpful too. Right. 
But for the most part, you know, day to day in terms of instruction or right. perspective on life, it was her incredible, loving, compassionate presence that was more important than anything. So they're all kind of different too. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, we've, um, we have this, uh, this three-year grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities mm-hmm. uh, that it's just been a, a godsend. I mean, we're a tiny little project, right? And so mm-hmm. um, it's, and the work that we're doing for that is, is biographies of 20th century people. Mm-hmm. So we're putting up all these biographies of people who, you know, were born, raised in Tibet, and then went into exile mm-hmm. or, or who spent 20 years in, in Chinese prison or, you know, people who faced a crisis, like you were saying, like the real, like the collapse and the, and the destruction mm-hmm. that Tibet experienced in the, in the, in the 20th century was, is, is, you know, one of the great tragedies of human civilization, if you ask me. Um, and they persevered, you know, these, the, these individuals, they, you know, maybe they were in Chinese prison for 20 years and they, they survived and, and, and maybe they didn't, maybe they were, they died in the end, but, mm-hmm. but stories of them being kind in prison, mm-hmm. stories of them meditating and even teaching. Mm-hmm. In, and, um, you know, not everybody can, can do that. Not everybody has the, the capacity to, uh, that, that that's what makes these you know, great teachers. Um, certainly, certainly in the face of crisis, everybody responds differently. And, and uh, but there's a, there's an inspiration there, I think, that, that sort of per- persevering in the face of crisis. Mm-hmm. And again, by relying on, on, on really simple truths of, of kindness and, uh, and compassion and, uh, and sort of managing one's anger and channeling mm-hmm. one's anger at, at injustice, you know, so that it doesn't burn you out, but it burns, mm-hmm. burns mm-hmm. you into doing, you know, a good deed or mm-hmm. so. Um, yeah, we have we have stories like that that I think are um, are timely for sure. Yeah, it actually would be you know probably a very big help to people right now. Just yeah. sort of those examples of endurance of hanging in there, of finding not exactly finding the good in the sense of enjoying you know terrible circumstance, but being able to not only live day to day in a better way, but Engage in seeking change in a better way. Right, right. That resilience is really key. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting because it's also now if you're talking about Tibet, we're talking about trauma and it's, you know, the most fundamental form of I'm not sure they recognize that or believe it, you know, that, mm-hmm. uh, that it's part of their worldview, um, which itself is interesting. Right. Um, and you've written... Recently, some pieces for Tricycle Magazine, Mother of Tulkus. Oh, yeah. And another entitled Sex and Gender Fluidity in Tibetan Buddhism. Right. right. These both sounds like you're asking some very interesting <laughs> questions about Buddhism. Yeah, the fun stuff, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, we're, yeah really. we're doing this series um, for Tricycle Magazine with, uh, with BDRC and, uh, and 84,000 on the sources of Buddhism. So, uh, so BDRC does talks about books and libraries, and eighty four thousand talks about scriptures and the Dharma, and, and we talk about people and the lives that they lived. Um, so I wrote about uh, this amazing woman, the um, Tukurgyan, who is a great teacher, uh, Paul, his grandmother, um, who stood up to to bullying monks. Um, and I told the story about uh, from Jungle Control 
of a dream that he had in which um, he made love to his friend, Kensei Wongpo, both of them in different bodies in, in the previous lives. Um, so, uh, so the first one, I, I, I was making the point about how strong women exist in Tibet and in Buddhism, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, you'd think you wouldn't have to make that point now, but you still do. Mm-hmm. So, I've been actually going around lately um, saying publicly as often as I can that, so on the Treasure of Lives, we have 1,311 biographies, and only 49 of those are of women, which is a terrible, 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 um, you know, shameful thing. That's 3.7%, and it's Mm -hmm. ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, Tibetan Buddhism is, you know, it's definitely male-dominated. It has been, uh, you know, monasteries were run by men for men, and most of the lineage holders are men, but not all of them. There's always been amazing uh, female practice centers and amazing um, women teachers. So they've just been ignored. Um, mm-hmm. And historians have been ignoring them. They'll, they'll like sort of mention their names, you know, oh, so-and-so's wife was an amazing practitioner and then go on to something else. You know, like, mm-hmm. well, tell me about her, right? I mean, and and Western scholars, you know, you know, we have our own patriarchy, and so we we also ignored those references. But um, you know, that's been changing. There's some really amazing scholars now um, who are paying attention, both Tibetan scholars and and Western scholars who are are starting to really pay attention to these women. Um, so I wanted to tell the story of a, of a great, you know, a great a great woman who stood up to the bullying of monks, and uh, mm-hmm. um, and then the other one uh, is on. Uh, I wanted to talk about gender. It's so, it's so, you know, it's so present right now. Like this, this talk of gender fluidity, right? And uh, so, these two scholars that I love, Janet Gyatso and, and Jose Cabazon, who, who you both, you know, both, and um, they've been doing really terrific scholarship on on gender and sex in Buddhist literature. Mm-hmm. You know, and then there's the scriptures are full, full of it. I mean, there's so much anxiety about what is a man. You know, because it's uh, a man. You, in order to ordain, you have to be a man. You can't be a woman. Well, what's the difference between a man and a woman? And well, what if, what if they are always their categories were never firm. There was always a sort of a, a third. There was always an ex, sort of excluded middle. You know, sort of both or neither man or woman. And they were so nervous about it because they were so nervous that uh, you know a, a non-man would present as a man and, and ordain. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and it's you're just so hard pressed in Buddhist literature to find a positive example of this sort of this fluidity. But yeah, I, yeah. Uh, when I was researching Kuntro's life, he he tells this this dream in which um, he's really distressed um, because his mother had just died, and he's really he's really sad. And he has this dream in which it, um, you know it's all these details. So I won't tell the whole story, but there's this there's this point in which which Kensei Wangpo sort of comes to him. And they spend the night making love, um, and they do it by they sort of shifting identities and shifting genders within the dream. You know, sometimes he's control, sometimes he's not, sometimes he's kensei, and that sort of that fluidity um, as an expression of love was really appealing to me. Right? It was it's it's okay, right? It, it, it's uh, it, it was an actual beautiful. It, mm-hmm. Opposed to the condemnations and the fear and the anxiety of this gender fluidity, here's an example of gender fluidity in the service of love, and uh, I just love that. Uh, you know, I mean, as a gay person, you know, I want, I want more. You know, I want more um, awareness and more 
sort of visibility for sort of the the non heterosexual uh, you know in the world you know and i and i do think that teachers you know there's this great there's this great interview with alan ginsburg i think he did it in like 1973 he was a student of Rinpoche and, and other lamas but he he asked Rinpoche, you know is there any issue with being gay in Rinpoche? He said, why? Why Why would there be? He said, there's no issue. I don't care. You know, it's nothing. You know, I think that's, it's so important that we hear from llamas that, uh, you know, sexuality is, 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 is okay. Which is different. Yeah, because you get still, you get the, the texts are full of, you know, all these very monastic presentations of, of sexuality in which you can't can't do this and you can't do that and you know they're so heteronormative mm-hmm. um and so you look at the texts you get a, you know, it's a real bummer but you know the living teachers who, who are teaching to human beings you know mm-hmm. they're, they're of course you know they're much more responsive to to the needs of people and they mm-hmm. recognize the humanity, right? The texts don't always recognize humanity, but but teach a good mm-hmm. teacher, good teacher will. One during something that happened during that long retreat was that a friend of mine, um, one of the very first friends uh, or acquaintances or anybody I knew that had AIDS, um, died, and oh. I got facts about it. That's how long ago it was. And somewhere in the facts, it said, you know, this person died, and that. Um, he chose the time of his passing or something like that. So mm-hmm. it was pretty clear, you know, that he'd somehow taken pills. He'd gotten enough pills that he mm-hmm. could decide to die. And so I went off to Syria um, to see Nasha Kenrubche and ask for some prayers for him. Uh, and, you know, said just a little bit. And then and Kepa said, yeah, of course I will pray. And then Syria went into greater detail about the the circumstances of his death and, and um, asked Kempo what he thought about that. And and Nyosha Ken Rubache in a completely typical move for him, you know, but very, very unusual response I've ever heard with that kind of question, said, um, well, as a Buddhist, how could I ever say it's right to take your own life? And as a Buddhist, how could I ever say it's right to suffer endlessly? Right. You know, and I thought, whoa, look at that. Which is yeah. uh, very much what you're saying. You know, there's a human being there. Right, right, and it's complicated, and uh, yeah. and the great masters are, are comfortable with that. Yeah, with the, that that's uh, you know the sort of multiple truths at any one moment. Which is, I think, something we all have to looking back at lineage and looking ahead toward <clears throat> the future, and even looking at now is a living expression for any one of us of the teachings is something we have to remember. Yeah. 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 People are complicated. Yeah. We're deeply flawed and we're all doing our best. Yeah. It's very, very true. Is there anything further you want to say about technology, by the way, (laughs) since you're right (laughs) in the midst of it? I don't know. I mean, I think it's one of those things, right? I I wish we didn't have it and, and thank goodness we do. Mm-hmm. I, I I love unplugging, and yet, you know, here we are doing this this conversation. I'm so grateful to be talking with you. Yeah. You're over in Massachusetts. I'm in upstate New York. You know, um, with Lily helping us. I don't even know yeah. where I'm sitting. And you know, thank goodness that <laughs> yeah. you know we can do this. And then and this is going to go out into the into the into the world. You know, yeah. 
actually. And that's such a great gift, you know, but thank goodness I can, you know, I can turn off all my devices and go sit with my sheep. Because, <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> I need that. <laughs> yes, Lily's in Berkeley. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to thank you so sincerely for, um, coming to speak with us, you know, my life in New York was a lot of fun when I ran into people like you and mm -hmm. we could have tea at the River museum or something yeah. like that. Sure. And I have to tell the story of how yes. I ran into you at a lunch once. Um, oh we, yes. That was very funny. Gar Garrison Institute. I think it was. Yeah, uh, it was. <laughs> Garrison. And I sat down and said, Oh, sure. And how, how, and you looked at me and said, Oh, and then you, you, you leaned over and you opened this big, huge bag, this like carpet bag, and you were rummaging <laughs> through and you pulled out a clown nose. And you pulled out, this is for your daughter. And I, like, and it, I don't know what it was that someone had given you a clown nose, but you, you saw me and immediately thought of uh, you were yeah. a daughter. And yeah. you, I just, I, I love that because it, you know, it shows how, I don't know, how kind you are and how aware oh, you. you are of, of, uh, of everyone around you. I don't Thank that. you. Yes, it's my Mary Poppins bag. It's like <laughs> the bane of my existence. Is like <laughs> no wonder I can't stand straight anymore. You know? <laughs> like, but it's a different time. It's so odd, you know, yeah. like our isolation and our hmm. our minds. You mm -hmm. know, but here we are. How lucky to have one another. It's true. Right. right. Thank you so much for having me on. That was that was just a real joy. Oh, it's great delight, and yeah. thank you all for joining us and yeah. to learn more about Alex's work. They're not his sheep. <laughs> you can visit treasuryoflives.org or find his book, The Life of Jamgun Control the Great, available in hardcover and ebook formats. Thank you for everyone for listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast for the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com. <laughs>